Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. This is your host, Dave Meyer. And today we have an incredible show for you today. I'm gonna to be joined by the one and only Henry Washington. And we're gonna be having a fantastic conversation with Taylor Marr, who is an economist at Redfin. He's gonna share all sorts of incredible information about the housing market and the migration patterns that are impacting housing markets all over the country that we've been seeing since COVID. Take notes during this episode because there is so much good information that Taylor's dropping here. You're going to want to pay close attention to this one. Welcome to On The Market, everyone. Today, I have my friend Henry Washington joining me for an interview with Taylor Marr from Redfin. Henry, what's going on, man? What's up, buddy? Glad to be here. Always love talking shop with you. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the first uh, show we've done just you and me so far. I know. It's special. I think we should do more, Dave. All right. Well, we already recorded the interview and it was a very special interview. Um, so maybe this is a good sign for, for this pairing. Uh, but before we jump into it, can you tell everyone listening what they should listen for? Because there was just so much information that Taylor provides to us, relevant information. I'm curious what some of your favorite takeaways were. Absolutely. If you are not driving, get yourself a pen and a piece of paper and try to write down some of these some of these statistics that that he's talking about. So we have talked a lot on multiple episodes about different factors in the market and and our take on them and what we think investors should or shouldn't do based on what we're seeing. And now today we got the actual data behind a lot of those things. And so um, 
if you are uh, an aspiring investor or an active investor and you're actively looking for properties, like the information you're going to get here is it's the it's the backbone of everything we've been talking about, because it's the data that's driving, um, you know, home sales. And and we talk about inflation. We talk about a lot about migration and how that's impacting um, prices. We talk about how rents are being impacted based on home prices. And so there's a ton of information here. And so I highly suggest just get a pen and a piece of paper and just try to jot down as much as you can and then go back through it and listen to it again, because there's so much good stuff here. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I know before you were a full-time investor, you were doing data and analytics as well. And as a, as a former analyst and, you know, something I always look for is trying to find source data, you know, where the data actually comes from and looking for that. And what I love about Taylor's information and what Redfin's putting out is they're taking their own data. This is stuff that's happening on their website. They're able to see, you know, in near real time where people who live in one market are searching for homes. And this is real source data that gives you, I mean, as reliable information as you can get. So as Henry said, write down some notes. And with that, let's bring in Taylor. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Welcome, Taylor Marr, who is the Deputy Chief Economist for Redfin 2 on the market. Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Can you tell us a little bit to just get us started about what your day-to-day looks like at Redfin and how you got into real estate economics and data analysis? That's a great question. So my day-to-day usually starts off with checking the latest economic releases. So this morning I woke up and uh, you know looked at what's going on in the financial markets reacting to the big drop in new home sales and uh, you know usually after that i look at some other data uh, refresh my own data at redfin we're tracking data daily weekly um, and try and just get a grasp of what's going on my finger on the pulse of what's going on across the country which markets are changing in what way 
Uh, and then I usually collaborate with my coworkers. We have a team of economists uh, that we all work closely with. Uh, we help each other pull data, uh, discuss research ideas. And ultimately, you know, we try and find unique ways that red pin data can shed some light in what's going on in trends across the country. So that's primarily what I do. I talk to a lot of press uh, such as yourself and, you know, try and make sense of the turbulent market that we're in. Uh, and so how I got into this, you know, I first and foremost uh, have studied economics, uh, really been tracking the, the global economy. And when I was in grad school, I was particularly focused on the housing bubble. You know, what factors led to that? What policy responses addressed some of those factors? Uh, and that really fed naturally into studying real estate markets. So I joined Redfin about seven years ago, um, really just digging into the data, modeling different uh, things on the data. And in particular, one of the first projects I really got excited about was modeling and predicting migration as you know, we have millions of Redfin users across the country and what an untapped data source to try and understand, can this give us a real time gauge about what households are doing across the country, whether they're looking to move, does this predict census data that tends to be a couple years lagged? So uh, that was kind of one of the first projects I got into and you know, mostly spend my days talking about migration, the housing market, interest rates, the economy, all that's happening. Uh, so yeah, hopefully that's a little bit about me. Well, that's sounds like an awesome job. I'm very excited to have you on. I mean, I think I have sounds a cool like your job, dream job. Yeah, it's my <laughs> it's my second dream job. I have my dream job, but Taylor, you have you you're coming in close. <laughs> you have written extensively about all sorts of really interesting information about the housing market, but you mentioned migration, which is one of the things we wanted to dive into today. We've seen such a uptick in migration since COVID, and it's seemingly having a large impact on many housing markets. Can you just give us a brief overview to start uh, about what your research has uncovered? And then I'm sure Henry and I will have a million more questions. Yeah, so at a high level, what we've been tracking, and again, we've been tracking migration for years uh, and trying to get a real-time pulse about what households are doing, where they're looking to move to, you know, what the macro trends are. One thing we noticed right away when the pandemic hit is initially a surge of searches away from urban places to rural places, people looking when the COVID lockdown orders were in place, uh, people looking to head for the hills and basically, you know, dream about owning a vacation property on the coast somewhere where they can work from, from home in. And we, so we watched that trend happen initially and it was sort of like, well, people are just daydreaming. Uh, but then, you know, what we started to do is track things like second home mortgage applications and track purchases uh, and, and actual follow people as they were buying these homes, selling homes in these urban areas. Uh, and what we saw evolve in our migration data is that really there was a pandemic acceleration of migration out of these big urban areas and into more rural small towns and in particular suburbanization was accelerating so throughout the pandemic we basically watched a major uptick in migration a lot of the trends that were happening pre-pandemic such as a lot of people leaving the bay area because it's too expensive moving to places like sacramento or phoenix which are more affordable for those bay area uh, migrants uh, we basically just watched that trend accelerate and the same is true trends out of on the east coast out of new york and dc uh pandemic accelerated the migration trends that were already underway it accelerated some of the suburbanization trends that were also underway uh and really the hot destinations um just became hotter so you know phoenix atlanta tampa uh these sunbelt metros that were relatively affordable across the country tended to just attract a lot of households looking to relocate Remote work basically untethered a lot of workers and made that a much easier transition. Uh, one thing also that I think it's overlooked in the narrative about how the pandemic uh, maybe fueled migration is that it's not just about affordability. One thing that holds back a lot of people from moving are, you know, close community ties. What the pandemic did, especially during the middle of 2020, is really cut all ties. You know, people were forced to social distance. Uh, you know, churches were shut down, schools were shut down, workplaces were uh, largely closed for a little while. And so it kind of created a one-time reset for people to reevaluate, you know, their daily patterns in life. Uh, and I would say that it really just lowered the bar to allow people who already kind of wanted to move, but maybe had excuses as to why not, 
uh, allowed those households to feel more free to move. Uh, then, you know, throughout the pandemic, we had a lot of other things start to influence migration uh, from low interest rates and second homes that I mentioned, but otherwise politics became a major driver. We saw the politics of how local responses to the pandemic, whether it's at the statewide of restrictions for COVID or just cultural responses, uh, it's also started to play a large role in people's migration decisions. Um, so that was another factor that sort of happened throughout the pandemic as well. Awesome. So, you know, I think it's cool to like dive into seeing how the migration patterns played out in COVID. And it's cool to think about, like I had forgotten because we get so, so into real estate here. I had forgotten how politics played a big role in people wanting to migrate as well. And then its impacts on real estate. And so like, I've got kind of like a two part question for you is like, do you feel like the migration patterns had a big part in the increase in real estate prices in those areas, right? That were quote unquote more affordable and now they may not be as affordable. And um, like, how do you see the impacts of that migration pattern now that, you know, things are starting to, to settle down a little bit, maybe come back to normal. I don't want to say, you know, I don't think the, you know, things are, are recessing, but, you know, things are kind of returning to normal levels. And what are the impacts of that migration? Yeah, those are great questions. So first, you know, one of the things that we watched happen throughout the pandemic with uh, politics playing a role uh, is that basically people started to pay a lot more attention to how the political landscape will influence their decision. Uh, and, you know, politics and the migration also as it shifted people into these other areas, um, you know, it definitely did play a role in the housing market. Some of the hottest migration destinations also had some of the fastest home price appreciation. Uh, new research that came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago showed that more than half of the appreciation in real estate markets can be tied to the trends of increase in remote work. And indeed, you know, where the migration patterns really shine are remote workers of leaving the Bay Area, leaving coastal cities like Seattle, New York, uh, to work remotely out of more affordable destinations. Uh, these remote workers sometimes did take a pay cut, uh, or maybe they kept their same wage. But overall, what we can see when we track Redfin users as they set a budget, when they're searching in a, in a new market like Phoenix, and they're coming from the Bay Area, uh, they'll say, you know, show me homes only under 500000 so as they're setting their budgets, what we've found is that people relocating into these more affordable areas tend to have significantly larger budgets than locals do. And it makes sense because they're usually coming from more higher income uh, origins. And, you know, as a result, they have more money to spend on housing in these destinations. In particular, this was pronounced in hot migration destinations like Nashville, Phoenix, Atlanta, uh, where migrants have bigger budgets and are able to basically... Uh, really increased demand more than just moving there as a new household and, and stronger population growth, uh, but really with a lot more money. Um, and so that might not show up in the wage data at all. Um, if you're just comparing wage growth, uh, you know, you, you won't see that as much because uh, these people might not have had an income growth. They might have even uh, taken an income cut, uh, a pay cut uh, for working remotely out of these areas. But it, we definitely do see that remote work contributed towards untethering workers, allowing them to migrate to these areas. Uh, and then as a result, that's pushed up home prices a lot more, um, you know, but, but largely in check with the incomes. Once you kind of change the picture to look at, okay, what's the typical buyer's income in the market today or in this year, uh, and you factor in the inward migration into an area, uh, the home price growth that looks exuberant from local incomes actually starts to look a little bit more rational. Uh, when you think about how much money these and uh, these households are able to come in with, uh, coupled with, you know, more space for a home office and more demand for real estate generally, uh, alongside more investor activity, we, we tracked an uptick in investor sales and purchases, um, as well as uh, second home purchases uh, by households, you know, looking to um, even use them as short term rentals down in the future. Um, now, going to your other part of your question, which is where do we go from here? We know that interest rates have been rising at their fastest pace in history. Uh, we see that that's having a real impact on the market. 
Um, just in the last week, we got data from NAR and Census on April sales, and both of them declined substantially. We know that the market is cooling uh, in terms of competition as a result of higher interest rates. Uh, but what does that mean for migration? Well, for migration, we haven't really observed any slowdown yet. Um, our latest data uh, just from last month still shows the continued pace of uh, migration out of more expensive areas into more affordable areas. Uh, and indeed, actually, it could even make more sense financially to look to move to a more low-cost area. And these migrants uh, or people relocating for work and thinking about buying you know, a bigger home in, in Phoenix, for example, might be less interest rate sensitive um, because they might be able to sell a home, cash in on their equity. Uh, we know that cash sales have increased, um, not just you know, in the face of rising interest rates, but really throughout the last year. And part of that is because of this migration pattern that we've been observing of people selling homes in these hot coastal cities, cashing in on the equity, and then paying cash for a property and uh, wherever they're relocating. And these might be retirees as well, downsizing. Um, but, you know, those are households that are not going to be as sensitive to interest rates. So as the market cools, uh, you know, it also could make financial sense. We know that mortgage payments are rising about 43% year over year. Uh, once you combine the effect of higher home prices as well as higher interest rates. And so that's a huge hit to affordability for the typical home buyer today. Uh, but, you know, where you can save on housing is really by migrating or looking to move to either a suburb or a place in the country that's much more affordable. Not everyone can work remote. Not everyone has those options. Certainly renters don't have those options. And that's a serious uh, concern that's hitting, you know, uh, millions of households right now as well. Um, but for a lot of households that are looking to relocate, maybe take a new job, uh, they might, you know, be more incentivized, I guess, uh, as rates do rise to still um, to still make that move to somewhere that's more affordable. Uh, what we did find when we surveyed households that moved uh, during the pandemic is that the majority were able to actually increase their disposable income uh, by cutting down on their housing costs after they moved. Uh, so, you know, it might have been more expensive compared to a year ago, but you know, for them, for that household, it was cheaper to buy in their new place than in their past place. So, you know, someone who moved from Seattle to Boise, for example, uh, typically was able to save a little bit of money on housing, even though prices were growing rapidly in Boise. Um, so that's kind of how that all fits together. Uh, we do think there's still trends in remote work. Airbnb just a couple of weeks ago announced that all of their engineers can work from anywhere. And we're still seeing a lot of companies sort of make these announcements. Uh, a lot of tech companies in particular are struggling to retain employees, their stock-based compensation that's been hit as well. One of the things that these tech companies can and are likely to continue doing is really think about, well, how can we give workers a boost in pay without actually increasing their pay? And that's allowed them to keep their current pay, but move to somewhere more affordable. Uh, so I think that's also kind of behind the strategy that a lot of these tech companies have is if we could say, hey, you can work from anywhere, uh, you're going to increase your disposable income by quite a bit, even if we don't pay you anymore and just allow you to take your income somewhere else. Uh, I think that's what's happening still and partly behind some of these continued migration trends. So, you know, one of the other things with migration that we've observed, one of the exceptions to uh, sort of this pattern continuing into throughout 2022 is the New York metro area. One thing that we've observed is that more people are looking to move back to New York. Uh, you know, we know rents are surging. There's a lot of people who maybe left New York last year or during 2020 uh, that are now returning to New York, new college grads that are taking jobs in New York. Uh, so New York is still likely to continue to see an outflow of residents on net. Uh, but what we saw is that basically it probably peaked in terms of the most people leaving about a year ago. Um, so the outflow that we are observing now for the last few quarters has not been as dramatic as it was during the peak. Now, that's not true in places like L.A., the Bay Area, D.C., all of those trends of outflow continue to accelerate, continue on their uh, pandemic-driven trend of more people leaving. Uh, so, you know, it remains to be seen what's going to actually happen. I know New York, uh, you know, doesn't have a lot of affordable housing or rental units. So, you know, that is pushing buyers and renters and households to their limits. And, you know, it could be a blip. Uh, New York is just not affordable enough to continue to retain people. Uh, and that's, you know, really it's Achilles heel. 
great city for jobs, but ultimately uh, housing is so unaffordable that more people just opt to leave. Well, that's 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 super cool. Um, it, you know, it's New York, right? So New York's got some. If you're from New York, people just always seem to want to end up back there, man. You guys, you New Yorkers are are, are interesting. Not people. me. I I <laughs> grew up right outside New York City. I left right after college and have never been back. Not planning um, it either. Right. I'm I'm super interested in like. So we talk a lot on the show about. Um, supply and demand. And although things seem to be slowing down, like I took a look at our local market numbers recently, and although supply it has gone up uh, percentage-wise, still from a volume perspective, we're well under the supply uh, that we need to meet the type of demand that's out there. I'm interested to know your thoughts on like how migration has played a role in supply and demand, obviously huge during COVID, uh, and how you're seeing that change uh, on a day-to-day basis now. Yeah, so supply is really a major reason that explains some of the pandemic patterns that we've been observing uh, and really even precede the pandemic. So the Bay Area uh, was really strong in job growth uh, during the early years of the 2010s, following the Great Recession, the Bay Area really came back strong. Uh, it was sort of one of the leading metros in terms of job growth. There was you know, a boom in the Bay Area. And actually, more people are moving to the Bay Area than leaving uh, for several years up until 2015. Uh, 2015 is basically peak Bay Area. Uh, and then what we saw happen was sort of the tide was turning and more people slowly started to leave as the Bay Area just got too expensive. Uh, and it wasn't for lack of demands. Lots of people wanted to live in the Bay Area. It was for lack of supply. The Bay Area just wasn't adding housing. And this is true across California, across most of the coastal cities, uh, including New York, that really supply was just not keeping up with demand. And, you know, when that happens, that pushes prices up too much. And eventually people just opt to leave or, or stop coming as well uh, to the areas that are more expensive. So when the pandemic really accelerated these out-migration trends out of these expensive coastal cities, uh, well, where were people going? It was largely the places that are building the most, places like Phoenix, Nashville, Raleigh. These are cities that uh, have been developing lots of housing in terms of per capita basis. Uh, you know, they build dramatically more housing um, than, than these coastal cities. And as a result of increase in supply, it's really just allowed the demand to come. Uh, it hasn't tamed prices too much. We know that prices are growing fastest in some of these hot migration destinations. Uh, but if they didn't build or if they built at the rate of some of these other places, uh, they would have seen prices spike even more. So the counterfactual is really just they, they're building a lot of housing. Um, now, what's hitting the market today is a little bit different. Uh, you know, then some of these longer term trends with developing more lands. Um, these are places where it's easier to build. They're usually more lower regulation, more tax friendly. So there's a confluence of factors that's really spurring on not only economic growth, but attracting people to move there. People like to go to places in Florida or Texas or Tennessee to start businesses, to work remote, not pay as much in taxes. Uh, so these are areas really just favorable for uh, those who are untethered and able to move to these areas. Um, now, one of the things that we've been observing is that just in the last week, about 18% of listings that have hit the market uh, have been forced to drop their price. And that's because buyers are getting priced out of the market and you know there's less foot traffic, less offers coming in, and sellers are just getting a little too aggressive in their pricing. And these sellers are you know having to drop their price to attract buyers to get an offer that's reasonable. Uh, so you know we've been observing this really skyrocket. Um, it, it's went from barely any, uh, just just 9% a year ago, uh, to more than double. It's rising at one of its fastest pace uh, that we've been observing in the last seven years. So these price drops are really how supply is having to react to higher interest rates and, and what's going on with buyer demand out there. Um, you know, the places that are building a lot of housing are adding some listings, uh, but really for every new house that is being built, there's still just as much demand to meet all, all of that new construction in these metro areas. So they're not seeing, you know, dramatic slowdown in prices as a result of all this uh, supply that's coming on the market. The one exception might be Minneapolis, where they've been building a lot of multifamily permits. And as a result of their upzoning, they made it a little bit easier to build uh, multifamily rental units. And we're seeing rents uh, start to decline year over year in Minneapolis. 
it's kind of the one exception. Uh, you know, there's a few others where rents are about flat as well, but Minneapolis is notable for actually adding rental multifamily supply, and that's having a real effect in terms of uh, rents. And I think that's partly because Minneapolis hasn't been a hot migration destination like some of these others places in in uh, the South that are really seeing, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people move there are building a lot of housing, but they're not able to build just so much housing that uh, makes a large dent in affordability just yet. Taylor, can you tell us a little bit about the scale of this migration? Because you said that it started pre-pandemic and then it really increased. What type of absolute numbers are we talking here? So yeah, so the scale of out-migration that we've been observing throughout the pandemic, well, in terms of the largest metro areas, uh, what we saw happen was that uh, for every 100 people in a local metro area, um, these major metro areas were losing pre-pandemic about 1% of their population. Uh, but during the pandemic, actually, that accelerated to about 4%. Um, sorry, not 4%, 0.4%. Um, so really, this is a major, like a quadrupling of acceleration of out-migration in these major metro areas. The, you know, the smaller metro areas that really attracted a lot of these migrants also saw their in-migration rates more than double. Um, and just to give you a specific example, the Bay Area, which has been notable for this accelerated out-migration in 2019, before the pandemic, about 62,000 more people left the Bay Area than were looking to move into the Bay Area. Uh, but during the pandemic, it was more than triple that. At 182,000 more people uh, left the Bay Area uh, then moved to the Bay Area, and that was just due to domestic migration. Uh, it's even worse once you factor in the impact of slowing immigration rates that have been happening for the last five years. And so the scale of this, you know, reshaping throughout the pandemic uh, is quite dramatic in having a real impact in some of these markets. The same is true on some of these smaller markets. Uh, they've seen pretty dramatic increases. You know, Phoenix is one of the fastest growing metro areas, Austin as well. And that is showing up clearly in terms of real estate prices, rents, uh, even the market for used cars that feeds into some of the record levels of inflation we've been observing recently uh, is even driven by this. If you think about people leaving urban walkable areas like Seattle, the Bay Area, LA, New York, uh, and moving to these more suburban car dependent areas, that creates a lot more demand for things like a second car um, for a household uh, and even gas as they dr are driving more. And that explains some of the trends in inflation that we've been seeing as well. So we know that inflation has been a major issue throughout the last uh, couple years of the pandemic. And in particular, inflation is rising more than 10% in some of the hottest migration destinations. So one thing that we observed is there's been uh, a strengthening relationship between migration and local inflation. And part of this comes from, again, rising rents, uh, rents in a place like Tampa that is, uh, you know, one of the fastest growing metro areas that we're tracking right now with Redfin data. Uh, inflation is over 10% and rents in particular are over 13%. Yeah, according to the BLS, the CPI data, we also track rents at Redfin for homes that are available to rent today, and rents are up more than 23% in Tampa. Uh, so, the, you know, the migration is also having a pretty dramatic increase in just the cost of living generally. Uh, you know, that also feeds into like the market for cars, the local market for cars, which auto prices have been, uh, you know, increasing substantially as well. So, you know, that's basically everything that we've been tracking as it relates to inflation. You know, there's always been a, a somewhat relationship, weak relationship between inflation and migration for the last decade. Uh, but the pandemic, you know, dramatically increased that where now more than half of the variation in local inflation is explained just by the migration patterns over the past year. Um, so if you're trying to understand, you know, how different uh, communities are being impacted by inflation, by rising interest rates, by rising rents. Uh, migration is really key to understanding that phenomenon. That was fascinating. I read that article you published about those correlations. And given what you just shared with us about the scale of this this issue or these patterns, do you think there is a legitimate concern or a legitimate chance that these popular destinations become just as expensive as the places that the migrants are leaving? 
I think affordability is an increasing concern in these destinations. Uh, that said, Phoenix will almost always be cheaper uh, to live in Phoenix uh, than LA, which is you know one of the main places that people uh, are coming from when they're moving to Phoenix. The same is true with Austin, as you look at Austin as maybe a substitute for the Bay Area. Austin's likely to remain cheaper than the Bay Area for the next decade, um, even though prices are growing substantially faster in Austin than they are in the Bay Area. Uh, it'll take a long time before prices actually were to surpass um, these, you know, coastal cities. Uh, you know, Austin is also building a lot of housing. So is Houston, San Antonio, these other places that a lot of people are moving there um, are still relatively affordable, even though they're appreciating a little bit faster. Uh, the thing is, though, that there's still a premium to live in some of these, you know, more expensive areas. Uh, the labor tends to be a little bit more productive that commends higher wages. And so these other patterns, you know, might keep you know, the beautiful weather in California might always make California a little bit more desirable than uh, than Arizona. And so there are these sort of longstanding premiums that people pay uh, that are likely to continue. So maybe there's a discount to living in Phoenix over L.A. and that discount is uh, is shrinking. Um, but, you know, it's still likely to be a little bit cheaper. Uh, there are some exceptions where, you know, so many people have moved there uh, that have just pushed up prices. Uh, I think Austin might be a good example for, you know, comparing Texas metro areas uh, where Austin has just gotten so expensive that it's starting to turn away a lot of people who maybe wanted to move to Austin and instead are now considering Dallas or Houston uh, in, in that area. Uh, the other thing is we mentioned politics as playing a role in migration too. Um, now, a lot of the political response during the pandemic had to do with things like mask orders, you know, whether schools were open, businesses were open, and that influences people's decision to move. Uh, but that's not to say that politics is becoming less of an issue as we move past the pandemic. Politics will continue to be an issue as, you know, there's things like abortion rights and things like uh, policies related to schools. I mean, there's still a lot of ways that politics is becoming more ingrained and connected to where you live. And this phenomenon of the big sort of people moving and, and self-sorting into areas that share their political beliefs, I believe was accelerated during the pandemic and really is showing no signs of going away. It still plays a large role in where people want to move. Uh, and so some of the areas that are most unaffordable, like the Bay Area, these coastal cities tend to be very liberal, and some people might not want to move where it's more affordable and more conservative, where land is more plentiful, you know, these other factors that might go along with that, uh, you know, still kind of influence the migration patterns as well. That's awesome. So can you talk a little bit about, so you talked briefly before about um, a market like um, Minnesota, where rents actually came down because of the increased volume in multifamily. And a lot of the people that listen to the show are looking to, you know, invest in real estate by, by buying and holding property. Typically rents go up with the rising price of real estate, but also they lag a little bit behind, right? Cause there's things like leases in place that have to come due before you can raise rents and all that. And so what have you seen as far as rents, uh, as, as it relates to prices, as we're starting to cool off a little bit, are rents still on the rise or are you seeing that cool down as well as the, with the real estate prices? Yes. Yeah, so the rental market is a little bit trickier, um, because most of what we're observing is sort of asking rents, what's on the market today? How much, uh, are the rents being asked for all of the available inventory? Um, by that metric, we are seeing that asking rents actually slowed for the first time in April uh, in more than a year. So it's been accelerating, climbing. Uh, we're starting to see some signs that maybe that's cooling off a little bit. Uh, we do expect that rent price growth, which was 17% at its peak in March and now is 15% in April, will continue to slow uh, you know, as affordability and these other uh, factors with inflation really weigh on how much people are able to spend, demands cooling off generally. Uh, but, you know, overall, uh, I think rents are likely to continue to increase and maybe even outpace some of what we're seeing in uh, for sale real estate prices. And I do think people who are just staying in place, renewing their leases, you know, they're still experiencing pretty strong rent growth, uh, but definitely not as dramatic. I think that's also expected to continue to to be quite strong. Uh, you know, one of the things with inflation being so hot what it is, that's also playing a driver in terms of keeping wage growth. 
being pulled up as well. People are demanding wages to you know increase in tandem with their cost of living. What's most top of mind for people is really rents as well as gas prices. Those are sort of the more salient measures of inflation that people are feeling that drive them to you know ask uh, ask for wage increases as well. Uh, so, so the growth of wages is also contributing to you know some of these uh, some of this rent growth, and there's also an increasing pool of higher income renters that are in the market that maybe are turned away from real estate because of higher interest rates as well, and opting to maybe even rent a, a single family long term rental, uh, and that we're seeing a trend in that as well. You've generally said that a lot of the markets that are receiving net positive migration are, you know, Phoenix, Austin, Tennessee, sort of the Southeast, South area. Are you seeing any patterns about the sub markets that you can share with us? Are people moving to the suburbs? Are they moving downtown? Is it all spread equally? Yeah, we are seeing uh, that buyers overall flocked to the suburbs. You know, a lot of renters, I, I kind of view it as a ripple effect where a lot of renters maybe renting an apartment and purchase maybe a condo or, or a home uh, a little bit further away. It's not like the person living downtown moved to the exurbs. It's more like they moved, you know, a little bit further away from the urban core. Uh, those households that were, you know, sort of at the edge of the city are moving a little bit further out into the suburbs. So we see basically everyone taking a step a little bit further out as people commute less, even if they're still going to go to the office, if they only commute in two or three days a week instead of five, uh, they can basically increase their commute and not really commute anymore as a weekly basis, uh, but really afford a lot more real estate. Um, I, I ran some numbers in Seattle during the uh, last year, and what I found was that the typical person in Seattle could uh, effectively double their home size for the same price um, by just moving out to the same commute distance, uh, you know, 50 minutes uh, of a commute instead of 30 minutes. But if they only do that, two days a week or three days a week, they're still going to be commuting a little bit less on average than they did uh, before the pandemic. So that, you know, they would demand a home office. And, and so we're seeing that uh, suburbanization really drive a lot of what happened during the pandemic. Now, that also came with not an increase in supply that pushed up prices a little bit faster than the urban core. So sort of the natural feedback loop is, well, you know, I, I would like more space, um, but, you know, I'm not willing to pay that much for it. So that's slowing down a little bit of that suburbanization trend uh, as the suburbs have been very hot. Uh, and, and a lot of people are still opting to buy condos in urban cores, but uh, definitely not as competitive and still not as hot. Even as certain markets have opened back up and we're seeing more people commute, uh, we haven't really seen the real estate demand completely bounce back in the urban core uh, at the same time. One thing we've talked about on the show, Taylor, a few times uh, recently is the so-called lock-in effect or the if impact of low, ultra-low interest rates over the last few years and how that might be impacting people's homeowners' decisions to sell. And a lot of what we've talked about has been based on your research. So I'd love this opportunity to ask you just a little bit, if you can explain to our listeners a little bit about the research you've done about the lock-in effect and what you think the impact for the housing market might be. So the lock-in effect is something that uh, researchers have known about for a long time, which is basically when someone has a really low interest rate, they're going to be less incentivized to trade up maybe a 4% rate for a 5% uh, or a 6% rate on a new home if the rate that maybe they refied to or when they purchased their home is just so much lower than the prevailing market rate. Now, the latest that Freddie Mac has said rates are at is about five and a quarter, uh, but we know that more than half of homeowners have been able to take advantage of low rates over the last couple of years and either purchase a home or refinance to a rate under 4%. Uh, so that's half of all homeowners. And in, in fact, more than a third of, uh, of homeowners also have rates even lower than that, um, you know, like around three or, or under. So uh, there's a substantial amount of households that are really going to face a dramatically higher mortgage payment, even for the exact same home price. So if you have a $500,000 home and you're looking at moving across the street to another $500,000 home and you have a 3% rate, but now you know you would have to take on a 5% mortgage rate, uh, your mortgage payments are just going to grow substantially. So that's basically how it can disincentivize homeowners from selling their home and becoming a move-up buyer. 
uh, not only does that discourage you know buying a property, but it also uh, takes out some of the supply that would maybe hit the market. It's a little unclear as to you know how many of those homeowners would have listed in the next year, but now because of the interest rate sensitivity, they might not opt to sell their home. Uh, I think the research is a little bit more mixed on how large of a role this will play. Um, and certainly there are other strategies that households are using, such as switching and opting for an adjustable rate mortgage to sort of reduce that uh, challenge of trading a 4% for a 5%. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of different uh, factors at play here. And as I mentioned before, someone who's maybe selling a home in a coastal city and cashing in on half a million dollars of home equity and then buying in a more affordable area, they might be able to pay cash. So that, that might still contribute to some listings in the market. Um, but what we do know is that you know, when rates are higher in the market and we have a substantial number of households that have lower rates, uh, you know, logically, you would expect some of those households just be disincentivized from listing. And over the last couple months, as rates have been rising, we did actually observe that listings were not keeping pace. Um, they were down about seven or eight percent year over year for for quite a while. It was only this past week that we started to see a little bit more listings at the market. And that could be, you know, maybe sellers who are thinking maybe home prices are peaking and they want to kind of take advantage uh, at the last moment for a strong market. Um, you know, maybe that's what's contributing to the listings uh, also hitting the market. But, you know, this lock-in effect is definitely something that will be top of mind for some households that are looking at what they can afford at today's rates and look at their current mortgage payment with a substantially lower rate and just think, well, I just think we should stay put for a little bit longer. So that's kind of what we're uh, seeing happen. And, you know, that tends to hit some markets a little bit more than others. Um, if there's markets that have uh, a higher share of properties that have lower mortgage rates, um, you know, that can also sort of weigh on uh, housing supply in those areas too. Awesome. You, you talked a little bit earlier uh, about, you know, we've talked a lot about people migrating away from coastal cities and even areas in, in, in the Bay Area and more people migrating out than migrating in. Are you seeing in the data that that's impacting the market um, where maybe home prices are coming down in those areas because there's more people leaving than coming there? Is that making it these really, really expensive markets? Are they getting a little more affordable? So relatively speaking, uh, home prices have not appreciated as much in these areas that are losing a lot of residents. Uh, that said, there's a lot of other factors that contributed to the home price boom over the last couple of years. Lower interest rates, as I mentioned, was a key factor in really allowing buyers to afford more house. And that's been a, a big factor in pushing up prices. Uh, you know, also demand for more space, demand to just be a homeowner and, and build equity uh, with demographics of millennials sort of hitting that prime home buyer age. Uh, increasingly happening every year. Uh, so these other factors also did contribute to prices rising in places like the Bay Area or LA or DC. Um, and certainly the suburbanization that's happened in all of these markets has tended to mask a little bit the outflow of people because there's been a boom in, in all of these major metro areas in their suburbs. Um, so even if the urban core has lost a lot of people, uh, some of the suburbs of these areas that have lost people on, on net um, have actually gained quite a bit from suburbanization to offset a lot of that decline. So you might not see it if you're a home buyer in you know, the DC metro area where I live and you're looking in the suburbs. Uh, you know, you wouldn't think that more people have left the metro area during the pandemic because prices and competition have been uh, wild. Same is true in places around Southern California as you move east into uh, out of LA into Riverside, as you go out past the Bay Area into places like closer to Sacramento. Um, all of those places have experienced uh, a big boom in home prices. Uh, it's really the, the most urban core of all of these markets that has seen, in some cases, rent declines, home prices declines, depending on you know the exact property that you're looking at, like condos in particular, uh, have seen some declines throughout the pandemic. But then these other factors, um, investor activity, uh, low interest rates might have offset some of that. So it sounds like given given what you're saying, is it possible that migration, because you're saying it hasn't slowed down, but some of the other variables that have impacted housing prices like low interest rates are receding to some degree, that migration 
could continue to be one of the primary or might be the primary driver of home price appreciation in the years to come. That's definitely true. Uh, what I think is that migration continues to be one of the most important uh, factors in understanding what's driving some of these real estate trends. In the 2021 census data that came out, uh, what we saw is slower birth rates, slower immigration rates, uh, and higher death rates from the pandemic. And it was domestic migration that was really the key variable in explaining all of the demographic shifts that happened across the country. Uh, I see that continuing into 2022, uh, even as interest rates rise. And, you know, it might make the difference of which markets are sort of still competitive, not experiencing as much of a slowdown. Uh, markets in North Carolina, for example, there's a lot of migration into North Carolina, into Florida, into Tennessee. Um, you know, from what I hear from agents on the ground there is that the market's still pretty, is pretty strong. Uh, I have a friend who put their home on the market in Charlotte uh, last weekend and had offers pre-listing. You know, there was a lot of touring activity nonstop all weekend. And so compare that to some of the urban cores that are really expensive, like Seattle, where I know some other people who have uh, been listing homes. And uh, really, there's been a, a much larger drop off in the more expensive uh, coastal urban areas. Those tend to be a little bit more sensitive to change in market conditions like interest rates uh, or financial market conditions as well. Um, so, you know, this has always been the case that these more expensive urban core areas uh, fluctuate a little bit more. Um, the more affordable places in the Midwest tend to just be a little bit more stable, less volatile in general. Taylor, this has been super enlightening. But before we, we get out of here, uh, I did want to ask you about some market conditions. You, you mentioned that earlier today, and for anyone listening, we're recording this in late May, uh, some data came out that showed that home sales declined pretty dramatically and more than most people were expecting. What does that mean for the housing market? Could you help our audience understand how home sales impact the market? Yeah, so what it means is that buyers are stepping back. They're seeing higher interest rates. They're seeing what their monthly payment would be or maybe how much home they can afford given today's rates. And some of them are being priced out of the market. Um, and there's been other factors going on, uh, you know, markets that have a lot of second home buyer demand, uh, or new home buyer demand, we're seeing also factors influence uh, the market in both of those segments and pull back. Uh, but overall, as buyers step back and we see home sales decline month over month now for several months uh, in the market reacting to higher interest rates, uh, that also will play a role in how fast home prices are growing. So we expect price growth to continue to slow. Um, price growth is already slowing and, you know, it may slow down all the way down to single digits. And we've been having double digit price growth for the last couple of years now, um, hitting all the way up to 20 percent. Uh, but as buyers step back, we're seeing sales decline. We're going to see less uh, builder activity happening, uh, fewer people just moving in general. So it, you might even see less supply in the market if you're just looking at new listings. Um, overall, homes will take longer to sell. We're seeing that um, in some places where uh, the typical home is sitting on the market just a little bit longer. Uh, we're seeing you know, fewer homes selling within a week or two weeks uh, compared to a year ago. Uh, we're seeing more homes that have been hitting the market ha pricing a little too aggressively and having to drop their price, as I mentioned earlier. And this is basically how markets always transition when rates change. So in 2018, we saw mortgage interest rates increase throughout that year by about a percentage point. And uh, pretty much what you observed is the same thing that we're observing right now. Um, you saw price drops start to increase, homes sit a little bit longer, inventory become a little bit more balanced. Now it was still, throughout that time, uh, a seller's market. And, you know, for the average home, there was still a lot more demand than there was uh, homes hitting the market in most cities across the country. And that's still true today. With the market even cooling, um, there's really just not enough supply on the market right now to meet where the, the buyers are. Um, that is at that price. Now, as prices start to come down and sort of react to higher interest rates, uh, that might draw more buyers back in who are maybe on the sidelines. Um, and, and so that's likely to continue to sort of happen as sort of a, an adjustment, a recalibration, uh, where the prices just need to really come down more in line with buyers' budgets. 
that's super helpful. Thank you for for explaining that. And you know, I know you don't have a, a crystal ball, and you have a team there at Redfin who does these types of projections. So I'm curious. You said single digits is where you expect appreciation to be by the end of the year. Do you? think at any point they'll be going flat or declining in the next few years? I definitely do think that there's going to be some homes that see their values decline. There's going to be some cities that see their values decline. Um, but on average, as I look across the country, you know, what's what's typical or what's average for how homes are appreciating, uh, I do think still we'll see some appreciation. It just won't be, you know, double digits where we've been at. For the next couple of years, uh, we really expect home price growth to not only slow down to single digits, but if inflation continues to be running hotter than two, three percent, um, you know, when you adjust for the higher inflation, you might see real home prices actually declining, uh, which would be, you know, something we haven't seen in, in a long time. So uh, that's kind of my outlook. We are still seeing strong wage gains and, and other factors that are uh, keeping the price level a little bit higher in some areas. I mentioned migration as people are able to come in with higher incomes, you know, that's keeping prices growing uh, pretty fast in some areas. But the higher interest rates really does start to weigh on uh, the typical buyer that's in the market right now. Taylor, is there anything that we haven't asked you that we should ask you <laughs> and that you think it is important for our listeners to know? Um... I'm taking your silence that means that Henry and I are excellent hosts and we've asked only extremely relevant and important questions. You guys are great hosts. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of other trends we could go deeper into regarding investor activity, second homes. Um, you know, there, there's new construction trends. There's a lot of things that, uh, that we track here, but, um, you know, we also track bidding wars. Um, I don't think I cited those stats very much at all, but, um, are you tracking like investors, hedge fund buyers? So yeah, some of that would show up in our investor data. Um, overall we track all of investment, uh, you know, like LLCs, uh, or, you know, that includes I buyers includes, um, you know, mom and pop investors, uh, but it also includes institutional, um, investors and, uh, our latest data runs through the fourth quarter of 2021, which, uh, reached a record of 18.4% of all, um, all U.S. home sales. It sounds like we're going to need to have you back because those are big, meaty topics that we would love to cover with you in more detail than we probably can in the remaining time we have on this show. Um, so hopefully we, you're, you're willing to come back because you've been a, a wealth of information. I think I speak for our audience and saying that this is really valuable for, for all of us. And we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was great to be here and always love talking about migration and housing trends. Uh, and you know, the great thing is the market's always changing and people need fresh perspective. So that's what we're talking about. That's why we're here. Yeah. Uh, but Taylor, before we get out of here, how can people connect with you if they want to? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Taylor A. Marr, uh, or just go to redfin.com slash news, and we put all of our research onto our blog there uh, and release a wealth of housing data on our data center on that blog as well. So uh, I recommend checking out any of those places, and um, yeah, feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks again, Taylor. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Whew, man. I feel like we just got taken to school <laughs> <What>? <laughs> man that's a ton of information but it's cool to hear you know it's it's cool to hear some of the actual stats and numbers behind a lot of the things we've been talking about um, from someone who lives and breathes that information every day so it was super super insightful you know they're a good guess because I wrote out all these questions and I didn't even need to ask half of them because he just proactively knew what to talk about and was just <laughs> dropping knowledge on us the whole time. Absolutely, man. It was it was by far one of the favorite interviews I've done. Yeah, I mean, all, all of our guests are great, but I really mean it when we should have Taylor back at some point. He was just saying like these huge other topics that we need to get into at some point, like investor activity and bidding wars. So... I have a feeling we'll be seeing him again. 
I mean, absolutely. There's so much shifting happening in the market from day to day. Like we could spend hours talking about each individual topic and it's all like relevant, valuable information for people who are just your average everyday home buyer and investors. So man, super, super good stuff. Yeah, that's why we're here on On the Market, just trying to bring everyone this data and news about this constantly shifting market. We are not going to do a crowdsource today because we had Taylor here, but in lieu of that, Henry, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Best place to reach me is at Instagram. I'm at the Henry Washington on Instagram, or you can check out my website, just henrywashington.com. Best place to reach me. All right. And if you want to connect with me, you can do so on Instagram as well at the data deli for Henry Washington and me, Dave Meyer. This is on the market. Thank you all so much for listening. If you like this episode, please make sure to leave us a review. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. On the market is created by me, Dave Meyer and Kaylin Bennett produced by Kaylin Bennett editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media copywriting by Nate Weintraub, and a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.